I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. When there's a massive influx of population due to asylum seekers or refugees from a foreign country, either because of violence or economic instability, uh, environmental crises, uh, or a combination of all of the above, it changes the identity and future of the country that ends up hosting them. And a large part of what dictates the future of any society in this situation is how it finds cultural and economic balance, not in spite of, but because of its refugee population. Every country has had different answers to the surge of refugees uh, fleeing this region in search of stability for themselves and their families. Uh, And some countries have opted for closing their borders, and others have realigned their entire DNA in the interest of providing safety and opportunity to people from Syria, uh, Iraq, Yemen, uh, Lebanon, and Palestine that are now part of a new generation of Middle Eastern diaspora. And this question of how to deal with people fleeing crises, not just in this region, but also internationally, has become one of the most dominant political and ethical conversations of our time. This episode is being released a little early because today is World Refugee Day, uh, which is a day that has had quite a bit of weight and significance in Kurdistan and Iraq. With the humanitarian crises that have affected the region due to internal conflicts, such as the one that began in 2014 uh, with the rise of the Islamic State or Daesh, as well as violence that continues to this day in Syria, Kurdistan and Iraq have both become a hub for international aid uh, over the past decade in particular. And my guest today is Jean-Nicolas Buz, and he's the head of UNHCR's efforts in Iraq and Kurdistan. And UNHCR, for those unfamiliar with the long list of acronyms that come from the humanitarian world, is the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And they're in charge, uh, to summarize very briefly, with providing care for refugees and asylum seekers, as well as displaced people within their own countries, both of which exist here. And we discussed the current state of Kurdistan and Iraq's needs regarding aid to these people and the political developments that have arisen concerning aid, both with Kurdistan and Iraq, and overall what UNHCR's philosophy is with providing assistance in and outside of camps and what needs to happen moving forward to ensure minimal suffering uh, for the affected populations of people here. He's an excellent authority on all of these subjects. Uh, So with all that said, here's my interview with him. Jean-Nicolas Buz, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Good morning. How are you? (laughs) I think it's best if we start with your own background uh, and your work prior uh, to coming here in Iraq. I know that you worked in in Yemen before this. uh, So uh, could you give me some of your background and and what led you to uh, working with UNHCR here? So I started uh, in the human rights, humanitarian world some 23 years ago. I worked both at headquarters in uh, Geneva on issues of the prohibition of torture, but I uh, spent most of my time in the field, uh, in Africa, in the Middle East, in Afghanistan. And just uh, prior to coming to Iraq some six or seven months ago, I was the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency representative in uh, in Yemen, which is one of the worst humanitarian crises of our time. 
And you've come here in six months since then, and Kurdistan obviously is a very different situation. It's become somewhat of a hub uh, for uh, other populations, certainly IDPs here, as well as uh, a large Syrian community. And I actually wanted to start with the Syrian community. Uh, so according to UNHCR's own data that I'm looking at right now, uh, there's about uh, slightly over a quarter million, uh, 260,000 uh, registered Syrian We'll say refugees, but it's actually asylum seekers, and we'll get into that later. Uh, but about half of that population is located here in Erbil. And then uh, there's an urban refugee population, and then there's refugee population in the camp. So since the beginning of 2022, uh, the refugee population here has increased by about 4,000, which is certainly a slower increase than in the past. It's not like in 2015. But I'd still like to know from you, uh, what are the needs and priorities of the Syrian population as we stand here in this year? So let's back track for a minute in terms of the, the timeline. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, crisis in, uh, in Syria started in 2011. So we are more than 10 years past the beginning of the crisis and past the beginning of the uh, movement, possible movement of a number of Syrians, mainly to Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Turkey, and quite a significant number actually to, uh, to Iraq, mainly to the Kurdistan region of Iraq. So as you rightly stated, some 260,000 uh, Syrian refugees have uh, found asylum in, uh, in Iraq. Most of them, more than 90, 95% of them, have actually uh, settled in uh, the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Most of them are of uh, Kurdish ethnic origin. They come from northeast Syria, whereas uh, we all know the um, fighting is still ongoing. Um, there is uh, still displacement of population. There are still people being killed, maimed by landmines. There's still forcible recruitment of uh, young men. There's still issues of uh, violation of uh, women's rights, uh, gender-based violence, rape, and, and so on. So a situation which is absolutely not conducive to any kind of return for this population. And actually, any Syrian in, uh, in KRI, whether it's in Erbil, Dohuk, or, or Suleimania, has no intention to, to go back uh, now because they know that they will be faced with major uh, problems. Um, out of the 260,000, 60% are living out of camps. So I've been able to integrate into the uh, Kurdish communities. They live, rent places in urban settings or in rural uh, villages. Um, they walk uh, like any other Kurdish, often in the informal sector uh, job market. Um, they send their kids to school. They have access to uh, medical care through the primary health center provided by the Ministry of uh, Public Health of uh, Kurdistan region. What is admirable in this situation, and it is really different from the situation of Syrian refugees in the region, is that both the authorities, the Kurdish authorities, but also the Kurdish population have been extremely welcoming of their brother and sister, and have made sure that those people will feel safe and will uh, be given the means to restore their own dignity. And if we could circle back real quick, uh, you talked about the percentage difference between the, the urban refugee population and the uh, population camps. What are some of the different needs those two populations have in terms of aid and just in terms of like living from day to day? So the living conditions are totally different if you are in a camp or if you are in a, let's say, an urban setting on your own. Mm -hmm. uh, in a camp, uh, the Syrian population does not need to pay rent. 
most of the utilities are being uh, grant, uh, provided by the humanitarian partners or by the municipalities, uh, whether you think about garbage collection, access to potable water. I mean, many of those camps, there is also uh, primary health centers, there may be sometimes a school. Uh, so everything is provided on site and at uh, no cost for the refugees. Of course, when you live within the Kurdish uh, communities, it's a completely different uh, setup. You have access on an equal uh, footing to all those services, but you have to pay for some of those services when the Kurdish population has to pay for those services. So, for example, the Kurdish refugees, uh, sorry, the Syrian refugees have to pay their rent and uh, they have to um, find ways to, to make a living to pay their electricity bills, their water bills, and so on and so forth. Now, the challenge is to know whether those who are in camps could actually support themselves, uh, be economically uh, self-reliant, autonomous, independent, enough uh, for them to move out of the camp or eventually to start paying for those utilities such as access to water, garbage collection and so on. Similarly to what is happening to the Syrian refugees or the Kurdish population uh, around them. Uh, the Syrian population here are actually recognized as asylum seekers rather than uh, refugees. And I wanted you to walk me through what is the exact difference between those two statuses here. So the recognition of the refugee status is not something which is done by UNHR anywhere in the world. Okay. This is for the government, which is hosting the population, to decide whether they recognize them as asylum seeker or refugees. The first step is to be recognized as an asylum seeker. You come to the country, you may not necessarily have had uh, the possibility to get a visa. You are not coming to be a tourist. You are not coming because you want a job in that country. You are coming because you are escaping violence. You are escaping human rights violation. And there's no other choice for you in a way but to leave your, your country of origin. So in the case of the, of the Syrians here in, uh, in KRI. The importance of the Naisalum seeker recognition is the fact that you came for a certain purpose, which is asking asylum, asking for protection by another state because your own state was unable or unwilling to protect you in the first place and mm -hmm. to guarantee your human rights. In that case, what is really important is that you are not being forced back to go back to your country uh, where you will face all those violations. And here again, we have to commend the KRG, the Kurdistan region government, for having accepted all their brother and sister and said, no, we will make sure that you are protected. You can remain on our territory. You are not going to be forced to go back to Kamishli, Raqqa, and so on and so forth. Uh, you are welcome here because we understand that you have some protection uh, uh, challenges, mm -hmm. uh, protection needs that requires us to be welcoming. It's quite exemplary, but it, we need to remember also the history of the Kurdish people themselves. There were 30 years ago those who went out of Kurdistan 
the Kurdistan region to be able to get the same type of asylum from neighboring countries, including uh, in Iraq, uh, in Syria at that time. And Syria at that time, the government and the population had been also extremely welcoming, like in Jordan, uh, of the Iraqi population. Now, the difference with a refugee status is one step further by which it is for the authorities to go through a process where they analyze individually whether the person has an individual fear of persecution if that person was to be returned to her country of origin. In the case of North Syria, you don't need to make this individual determination. Anyone coming from North Syria is at risk mm -hmm for their life, for their well-being, at risk of being arrested, at risk of being tortured, at risk of sexual and gender-based violence, and so on and so forth. So the distinction is one really of a legal nature, but in reality it does not make such a big difference because the authorities here have decided that as an asylum seekers, you are going to be protected and you can remain in the territory of the Kurdistan region of Iraq. And retain freedom of movement. And retain freedom yeah, of movement, be able to rent places, be able to put your kids in school, mm -hmm. access medical care free of charge, and even uh, get a job in the informal uh, sector in particular. I wanted to talk about actually the differences between the KRG and the Iraqi federal government in terms of uh, uh, treatment of refugees and IDPs, because a very important uh, news story that developed two years ago now, but is still uh, continuing, is in October 2020, uh, the Iraqi federal government announced that it will start uh, shutting down camps in the interest, as quoted from Iraqi state media, of being shut down in the interest of ending displacement in Iraq. And last week, Iraqi state media once again confirmed that the situation is continuing. Uh, they're still interested in shutting down these camps, but they're interested in expanding grants and loans to give to families uh, as these camps continue to shut down. Um, there are still 28 camps uh, in total still open, uh, uh, all of which are in the Kurdistan region except for two. I want to know, do you support the continued closing of these camps? Uh, and if they continue shut down, shutting down, uh, what is the effectiveness of opening up loans and grants for these families? And uh, uh, what is going to happen to these people? Let me first clarify that we are speaking about really two different groups of population. Previously, we were discussing the situation of Syrian refugees, who are people who cross an international border to seek asylum, to seek protection in another state. In the case of the camps which were closed uh, by the federal authorities uh, um, in 2020, as, as of 2020, we're speaking about Iraqi nationals who were displaced because of the insurgency of Daesh, because of the violence provoked by uh, Daesh and by the response to Daesh. As we all know, Daesh was defeated in 2017, uh, and since then, uh, the objective has been to ensures that people could go back home. Nobody wants to remain in a camp. The camp is not a solution, neither for refugees, nor for what we call internally displaced uh, populations, so the Iraqi uh, who, who were displaced. We're speaking about 6.5 million uh, Iraqi out of 41 million had been displaced by the violence created by the, um, the insurgency uh, from Daesh. So it's quite a significant number. And therefore, those people were mainly living in camps, in informal sites. Some had, 
had the means to rent a places in urban center, had moved away from the hot spot where the fighting between uh, Daesh and the coalition or the Iraqi uh, security forces were, was taking place. So it's natural that uh, after three or four years, the government and the humanitarian were um, in agreement, decided to uh, support the return of those Iraqi to their place of origin. Can you speak to the uh, effectiveness of this compensation as it's gone on? Have UNHCR been working with the Iraqi federal government on this? So UNHCR has not been directly working because this is really uh, with the authorities because this is a scheme which has been decided uh, by the authorities and mm-hmm. the, they are managing it. They are identifying the people who need to receive those grants and those compensation package. They are the one uh, transferring the 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 cash uh, uh, for for people to to be able to rebuild their their life. No doubt that it is making a difference for those who have received the, the grants. Now mm-hmm. we hear that uh, because we are speaking about 6.5 million people having been displaced, we are hearing uh, that not everyone uh, has received the grant. Some are still in the pipeline to receive the grant. Some have yet to make uh, a claim to receive the grant. So it's quite a large endeavor mm-hmm. when you speak of when you, when you look at the number of people who could be entitled to receive uh, this support. But there's no doubt that if you want to return home after having lost everything and lived in uh, often desperate and dire situation in a camp or outside a camp during the whole time of Daesh in Iraq, it's clear that you need some financial help to bounce back and resume uh, your life. And there is a marked difference between the Kurdistan regional government stance on these camps being shut down, which is why most of the remaining camps uh, are in Kurdish territory. Uh, how has this political schism between the KRI and Iraq uh, uh, affected UNHCR's work? The camps in uh, Karai, as you noted, there's still uh, 24, 25 of them which are um, in Karai, have very different uh, profile of population Mm -hmm. uh, than the camps which were in federal Iraq. Um, Let's take uh, the biggest camps are in Dok. Uh, it's approximately 140,000 people, people, IDPs, Iraqi displaced. They are mainly uh, Yazidi. Mm-hmm. There are many Yazidi uh, who are unable or unwilling to go back to Sinjar, to Sinoni, uh, because they don't feel safe uh, there. They don't know whether the house is still uh, uh, there. They, they, some houses have been destroyed. Some houses have been occupied. They don't know what kind of livelihood opportunities they will find. They are not sure about the level and the quality of the services, whether we speak about education or healthcare, and therefore they are not ready yet to return to Sinja. All of them that I, I've met over the last six or seven months um, have expressed interest to go, uh, go back to Sinja. It's their place. It's their home. It's their. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a, especially for the Yazidi. It's a, it's a question of uh, of cultural survival of being together in their place of origin. It has a religious dimension and a social dimension, as we all know. And one of the key humanitarian principles for UNHCR and the humanitarian partners, but which is recognized by the authorities, is that nobody... Nobody should be forced to go back home if they don't feel that it is the right moment, if they don't feel that they will be safe, if they don't feel that they will have access to those basic services and 
have a, uh, some livelihood opportunities. Every of those um, camps and every of those families in those camps have a different story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for whatever reason, does not that we need to respect does not want to, to go back. Now, the challenge for UNHCR and the advocacy that we have been making with the uh, Kurdistan region government is that the camp is not a solution. Living in a camp is depriving people from um, a certain level of quality of life. UNHCR advocacy is that we should not keep people in camps. Whether it's Iraqi displaced, Yazidi and other population, or whether it's refugees coming from Syria, Iran or Turkey, nobody should remain in a camp because a camp is, is not conducive for you to integrate with the community, having access to public services, having jobs. And in terms of social cohesion, it creates really disparities between yeah. those in the camp and the surrounding uh, communities. Well, it stimmies social mobility completely. Totally, yeah. uh, and creates uh, this, uh, this tension where this perception that people in camps have access to better services, or on the contrary, exactly. that the services in the camp are at a uh, lower quality than the services provided outside the camp. So there's all kind of perception. And on top of that, uh, we need to recognize, and UNHCR, uh, as the UN Refugee Agency, has 70 years of experience, that in terms of cost, the camps are extremely expensive to maintain because you need to bring all the services to the camp instead of having people going to the existing services within the communities. And uh, something we don't speak too much about, it's also difficult to maintain law and order and security in the camps. Yes. Yeah, it can be very, like, those are a huge center for gender-based violence, for example, uh, child abuse, all sorts of uh, issues that come from those camps that are incredibly difficult, impossible, quite frankly, to regulate. Yeah, because you isolate the population and you don't create the other support network that people will have normally of being able to interact with their neighbor, being inter- able to interact with the, 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 the mosque uh, goers or your uh, traditional and religious philanthropic organization, mm-hmm. which are operating in all those uh, communities, especially in, uh, in the Kurdistan region, yes. where you have a strong sense of solidarity dif- uh, between different communities. By isolating people in a camp, you deprive them of access to those uh, to those services, basically. I'd like to focus on a more recent spike in tensions uh, in Sinjar or Shingal. Uh, there were violent clashes a month ago between the Yazidi uh, militia Yabasha and the Iraqi military. And there were about 3,500, uh, roughly, uh, primarily Yazidi uh, displaced people because of this. And the Iraqi Ministry of Migration has said, uh, and I quote, uh, this displacement is temporary because the situation is good and has returned to normal again. Where, in your view, uh, does the situation stand uh, with this displaced community and how temporary do you believe the displacement of this community actually is? So I was in uh, Sinoni yesterday and I met some of those uh, families which have been displaced a month ago by this uh, clashes uh, between different uh, armed uh, groups and the uh, Iraqi uh, security forces. Um, they, they were very keen on uh, stating that for them it was extremely important to return uh, for different reasons. Uh, some of them uh, associated with the fact that they didn't want to live in camps or in uh, in KRI. A number of them had been displaced in the past and had returned actually in 2020. 
So it was the second time in recent years that they were displaced and they didn't want to stay as displaced population. They were very keen on coming back to their home. Most of them indicated that they stay between four and ten days in uh, in Kara, in Doak in particular. Probably 60 to 70% uh, of those who were displaced last month have already returned to Sinjar. Now, a number of them have flagged uh, challenges in returning. Um, their house... Uh, uh, need some rehabilitation. They are not sure about the level of services that they are going to receive. I met a lot of uh, young people who actually decided to return quite rapidly because they wanted to pass their exams. You remember it was the, the, the clashes happened just a few weeks before the uh, final exam uh, for, for this year. So they absolutely wanted to continue their education. I think uh, it's very clear that for uh, all Iraqis, and certainly the, the, the Yazidi, uh, education is absolutely critical. They, they know that it is a way for them to progress in life. So all those kids, it's quite, quite, quite remarkable to see that all those kids were proud of having come back and wanted to rebuild uh, Sinjar and their communities. Uh, and that can only be done if you are, you are back home. If you are in displacement in Doak or elsewhere, you don't rebuild your communities. You just survive. What can you say about the population of people who don't feel safe returning back to Shingal whatsoever? As we discussed before, nobody should be forced and nobody mm -hmm. will be forced because we have these guarantees from, uh, from the authorities here in uh, KRI. Nobody will be forced to return. So everybody will do it at its own pace, at her own pace. It depends on your own characteristic. Maybe it's a bit more difficult if you are a single woman uh, with many children. Maybe it's a bit easier if there is a male uh, member of the family who can uh, help reintegrate in the communities. Maybe it's more difficult for persons with disabilities to return. So we need to really look at uh, the individual story behind the displacement. And nobody will be, uh, will be forced. But from what I've heard from all the uh, Yazidi and the other communities, whether it's the Syrian refugees, the Turkish, the Iranian refugees, nobody wants to remain as a displaced person. Nobody wants to be far from home. Everybody wants to be back in their place of origin. One of the big issues that has come up in 2022 is uh, the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, and it has affected uh, both of our fields. It has affected both reporters and uh, uh, humanitarians in terms of funding and being able to secure funding for projects in other areas. And I would just like to hear what you would have to say about the situation with UNHCR's operations in Iraq uh, uh, as funding goes elsewhere, because that happens a lot of the time. And I think a lot of the time we think of UNHCR and the UN in general as this big monolith, uh, uh, but it's in, it's, it's in constant and desperate need of funding. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'd just like to hear what you think uh, going forward UNHCR in Iraq needs. Let me take this opportunity to uh, remind everyone that uh, Ukraine is the last of those crises. Uh, um, a bit earlier, we had uh, Afghanistan in August, which went back into the hands of the uh, Taliban with all kinds of displacement of population and all kinds of uh, humanitarian needs yes. being created by the change. Uh, the radical change of uh, yes. of those holding power in uh, Kabul. 
If we go even six months uh, earlier, we had the Tigray crisis in Ethiopia with massive uh, humanitarian needs, uh, with population uh, on the brink of famine. As we mentioned earlier on, I was in Yemen. In Yemen, 80% of the population is food insecure. Iraq is going back to stability. Yes, there's still some insecurity, hotspots, there's still issues, there's a disputed territories between uh, KRI and federal Iraq, uh, there's risk of uh, um, Daesh uh, sleeping cells uh, uh, operating, there's a climate-induced uh, uh, displacement, there's risk related to uh, food security because uh, the prices of uh, food are going up and there's not enough production uh, of food in, in Iraq. There's all kinds of issues, but it's more and more stable. And the Iraqi government have the financial resources to take care of their own population eventually even to take care of the Syrian refugee population. We always draw the, 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 the comparison. When one million Syrian refugees arrived in, uh, in Germany, nobody thought of establishing humanitarian UN program in Germany. We all expected the German government, because they have the resources, the means, uh, the capacities, to take care of this one million refugees, and they did. I'm not saying that we are yet there entirely for, for, for Iraq, but progressively with both on one side the stability and on the other side the uh, benefits from the oil production means that we believe that uh, more and more this uh, humanitarian intervention can be taken care of by relevant public institutions. And by and large, there is political commitment and interest uh, to deliver for its own population those services, such as paying compensation and reintegration package for the Iraqi who had been displaced by uh, Daesh. And finally, I'd like to ask, uh, since it's International World Refugee Day, uh, what is the significance of this day to you personally, and what is its significance to an organization like UNHCR? So the, the theme of uh, World Refugee Day this year is uh, access to asylum, access to the territory, access to protection in a non-discriminatory manner. And I think it's, uh, there's two elements to, to this uh, theme which are critically important for me and for my organization, but I think for many of the listeners to this podcast uh, who, who want to demonstrate their solidarity with people who are fleeing conflict, who are fleeing uh, persecution. So in terms of access to the territory is making sure that we don't build wall, that we don't uh, uh, block people from arriving in a boat uh, on the Mediterranean uh, Sea or anywhere else by rejecting those, uh, those people, by pushing them back. Here we have a, a good example. Uh, the KRI, uh, both the authorities and the population welcomed uh, the Syrian, the Syrian mm -hmm. uh, brother and sister as they had welcomed previously the Iranian and the Turkish. And that is, this is really the model that we want to promote. But the second aspect is the non-discrimination, is that whatever is the reason uh, behind the persecution, you should be welcome. Whether it's a conflict or whether it's because you hold different political opinion or because you are from a different sexual orientation or because you pray a different God, these are reasons that need to be recognized for you 
to get asylum and to be protected by another state, to receive this treatment as an asylum seeker slash refugees, because your rights as a person, as an individual, uh, are being violated and cannot be uh, protected by your own uh, state. Well, I'd like to thank you again for your time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on this podcast, and I hope everybody will enjoy uh, our discussion today. Of course. Cheers. Thanks so much to John Nicola and his team for taking the time to come and talk. If you're interested in UNHCR's projects or interested in donating to their efforts, which I would highly encourage, I've included a link below to their site. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network. Uh, you can find our site in another link below at kurdistanin.net. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us at info at kurdistanin.net. You can find this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and a whole list of other platforms. So if you like what you're hearing, be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. I've been Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. Inside Kurdistan.